have a beautiful waveform. Thank you. Mm-hmm. That's what I've always wanted to hear. How did you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's every girl's dream. Every podcaster's dream. Exactly. <laughs> You're listening to Inside the Aluminum Tube. This podcast has adult language and sometimes contains graphic descriptions of accidents and incidents, often resulting in death. If you're scared to fly, proceed with caution. Sir, are your pants meowing? Yeah, you interested? Pull up. No, the plane is about to crash. Wind shear. You're looking a little anxious, Kent. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Increase climb. Only if you really need me to. Threw his clothes off. Had an accident. Got his tree. And went night-night. 50, 40. Oh, so like some dumb bro shit. Okay, cool. Cool, 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 cool. 30, 20, 10. Clear of conflict. Welcome back to Inside the Aluminum Tube, the aviation history podcast, where when I have time, I read a story from aviation history to my co-host, who is not an aviation expert. And together, we look at events in aviation history like air disasters, accidents, incidents, and mere mishaps. Aviation is worth remembering, so I'm here to tell you the stories and explain the complexities in a way that everyone can understand. I'm Shannon Baker. I'm your host and the creator. You can learn more about me in episode zero, which needs updating. Uh, admittedly, I, I'm going to have a new one soon. If you want to see pictures of the events we, that we talk about and enhance your experience, you should follow me on Instagram at AluminumTube. I kind of have shied away from the Twitter lately. Twitter's become kind of a flaming dumpster. It really has. So I'm like, eh, with the Twitter. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But I am on Twitter. It's also AluminumTube. Go to AluminumTubePodcast or ALTubePodcast.com where you can join my Patreon, tip me, get decals, meet the co-hosts, including the new one today, and listen to episodes all right there in your browser or on your favorite platform. If you like this podcast, please leave a review and give me a follow or a subscribe, whatever platform you listen to. And I would love for each and every listener, if you would please tell a few friends because that's how podcasts grow. I would definitely agree with that. Yeah, I think that's... That's what I really need people to do is just tell their friends and be like, hey, I I like this podcast. And so, yeah, anyway. Yeah, I tell all my friends. I appreciate that so much. Of course. So today I traveled to sunny Los Angeles, California, and it is sunny. It was a little cloudy this morning, but I traveled all the way here to record a few episodes with a friend and a new co-host, Inez Maza. Hi. And Inez works in the podcast industry, but we were planning on recording this before she ever did. Inez, take some time and tell us why you're in L.A., where you're from. Tell us about yourself. Yeah, of course. So I came to L.A. kind of by mistake. I think most people come to L.A. by mistake. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, no one's here on purpose. (laughs) They sort of just showed up. It just happened. Well, I happened to find myself in L.A. Yes. Yeah, you hear that again and again. Anyway, Mm -hmm. I didn't mean Oh, yeah. Isn't that how old stories start from L.A.? (laughs) No one's from here, but everyone shows up here and just ends up here. Exactly. And ends up here for a long time. And I get that because LA has a cool vibe. It really does. But it's also a toxic place. But, you know, you just kind of have to find your group of people and the space that works for you. And honestly, I found that within the podcast industry. Um, It's sort of this little bubble in the middle of Hollywood that's growing and everyone is just genuine and they are normal people just trying to tell stories and have fun. And so I've really loved joining that community. Where are you from, Ines? I am from Spain. Um, I have sort of a complicated background, but born in New York, grew up in Spain with an English-Brazilian mother and Spanish father. So a big mix. 
And you are perfect for the stories that I've written for you today. I mean, just absolutely perfect. I'm so Um, excited. So you went to school for writing. Yes. I studied in Savannah, Georgia. I went to SCAD, um, where I studied dramatic writing with a minor in film and TV. So that's sort of what got me into the entertainment industry and the exposure to it happened at school and then I was looking to move to the east well to stay on the east coast um, and potentially move to New York I almost I mean I fell in love with Chicago like I was down to move anywhere Chicago is really great city it's a very Very cool city city. very cool I went sort of in the middle of the pandemic worst time to go but still fell in love with it so I feel like if you can fall in love with a city when it's dead and closed you'll love it even more when it's all open the whole sort of Hollywood idea didn't really attract me But I ended up getting a job in podcasts, which brought me here. And I am so grateful that I came this way, that I work in podcasts and that I discovered this industry because it is so fun. Just feel that I've been welcomed with open arms and I just, I'm so excited to create and be part of it. Well, I am super excited to have you on today. And I know we've been planning this for a while. I flew in last night after doing a New Orleans and back (laughs) from uh, New York. And it was a long road, but I'm glad we're here. I'm always happy to travel and have new experiences, especially with new people, especially with compelling stories. And I think that yours is particularly compelling being a native to the United States, but then also having so much exposure living in Spain and being and recently living in Portugal. And that gives you so much perspective. And that's actually something I'm going to appreciate very much on on this episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you ready to get started? Absolutely. So before we get started, I had a listener write and ask me a question that I have gotten before, but I have never addressed, and we're going to talk about it. This question comes from Joe Hartman, and I'd like to thank her for writing in, and here's what she writes. I have been listening to your podcast for a bit now. I'm hoping you can answer a question for me. Today on an overseas trip, an elderly woman did not wake up for breakfast resuscitation was unsuccessful. My traveling group, including two very seasoned travelers, have never seen this and wonder how often this happens. Thanks. I really enjoy the podcast and take comfort from the explanation of investigation on how the issues are addressed. (laughs) What a question. That is a question, right? (laughs) I love it. Wow. I've never experienced something like that on a flight. (laughs) So first off, let me just say nobody technically dies on an airplane. The airline that I work for prohibits anyone, any staff member or passenger, including doctors, from declaring a person dead. I'm sorry, how? They're just not allowed. People don't die on airplanes. They become unresponsive. That's hilarious. It is very different. That's yes. dark. It hilarious. Dark. So that, like I said, that includes doctors. So we're going to call this person an unresponsive person, not a dead person. Wow. Yeah. So here's what happens. The unresponsive person is taken away by medical facilitators once the airplane lands. Then that team is responsible for making decisions about the unresponsive person and whether they are dead or not dead. Interesting. So they're declared dead once once they arrive. Right. Not on on the way. Oh, my God. What a loophole. It is quite (laughs) a loophole, but it gets a little weirder. How often does it happen? I would say it happens a lot. I flew with a flight attendant who'd been working for the company for over 30 years and she told me that it happens on her flights about every five years oh wow on her flights just hers so if you take that and you expand that out to all the flights with all companies i would say it happens at least once a month or more wow 
for any for any given airline at least once a month right. for all airlines as a whole probably close to daily i mean that makes sense that then they wouldn't allow for people to get to be declared dead up in the air so long haul international obviously is going to see the majority of air quotes unresponsive right. people because the length of the flight and the size of the aircraft you know if you're flying 330 or 350 people and you're doing that for 12 hours obviously that's going to increase the likelihood of someone dying on the airplane right to expound on that a little bit here's what happens once the person is unresponsive mm -hmm. They are left in their seat because we have no place to put an unresponsive person on board an aircraft. So you get the joy of sitting next to a dead person? An unresponsive person, Inez. Come on. <laughs> my, my bad. <laughs> they're left in their seat. Sometimes um, they're covered up with a blanket entirely. Oh, my God. That, that is so uncomfortable. So we don't have any place on an airplane to put... A, a body you can't put them down with the luggage we have no access to that area oh, during okay. flight so there is there literally is no other place and i guess you're not going to put them in the crew cabin where they sleep no nope, you're not going to put them in the crew cabin also you'd have to carry that person to right. the crew cabin so then people would see that's kind of a big deal right yeah. and then we're not going to lay them in the in the aisle because mm -hmm. that creates a hazard right and you're not going to be able to put them in a galley which is like the kitchen, mm -hmm. because again, it creates a hazard and an obstacle. So again, they are left in their seat. Wow. Uh, so I've never had a death on an airplane that I've been on, but I've only been an airline pilot for four years. So it's more accurate to say that I haven't yet had <laughs> a death on an airplane. Well, next year might be the lucky year. We have protocol for dealing with it. So I hope that answers your question, Joe, <laughs> and thank you for writing it's that is a very interesting question that I have fielded before. When someone first asked me, I had to go actually find out. I just go out to ask some flight attendants. Oh, wow. That's not in a pilot manual. We don't deal with that. That's not something that's backside. What we call backside. That's mm -hmm. the flight attendants. They deal with that. We don't deal with that. Oh. We will relay to medical for someone who is obviously in having a medical emergency because mm -hmm. we're the ones with the radios and we can talk to medical people. Right. But once the person is deemed unresponsive, then, then the flight attendants handle it. Wow. Now, are the flight attendants, is part of their course and in training, do they get any first aid training? They have basic first aid training. Okay. But they're not like trained EMTs or anything. Right. Yeah. I never even thought about that. Someone becoming unresponsive on a plane. Unresponsive. Yes. Right. Exactly. <laughs> See, they're I thought the question was going down. in a completely different direction because like my mom does not like to wake up for breakfast and then uh, air stewardesses will try and wake her up. And right. she's like, can I sleep? Leave me alone. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. go away. Right. So that's where I thought this was going. I actually <laughs> prefer to sleep through meals as well. Um, yeah. All right. So are you ready to talk airplanes? Yes. Today I have a long story. So sit back, relax, and we're, we're we'll get through it all. So we're going to talk about the airplane and then we're going to talk about the company and then we're going to talk about the crew if it, if it matters. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to talk maybe about geographic location and then we'll talk about the events. Okay. Great. That's how it's going to roll out. You've heard a few episodes, so you kind of know. Mm -hmm. Let's start with the airplane. In the 1960s, air travel by jet became possible, popular, and somewhat affordable. Demand for larger jet aircraft grew, and Pan American Airways, or Pan Am, wanted something larger with a longer range than their current fleet. They calculated that if they could get a large jet and seat more people, they could reduce the per seat cost by up to 30%, and pass some of that along to the traveler, making air travel more affordable. They could open the aviation market, and specifically international markets, to more people, and also increase their profit. 
Sounds great, but they never actually do that. (laughs) As a result, the four-engine Boeing 747 was born. It's a very large, long-range, wide-body airliner. And wide-body means it has two aisles, three banks of seats. Right. It's the ones with the two on one side, then four in the middle, and then two on the other? So this would have actually had three. Okay. uh, Four and three. Okay. Oh, even bigger. Yeah, so bigger. Yep. It was designed and manufactured by Boeing in Everett, Washington. In 1965, an aerospace engineer named Joe Sutter designed the first twin-aisle airliner, like I said. And true to their word, in 1966, Pan Am ordered 25 Boeing 747-100, which is just the first model of that. Mm -hmm. They ordered 25 of them. Boeing needed bigger, more advanced engines, which they had specifically designed for the 747, but they had other logistical problems. Their factory was physically too small, so they had to build a new one. Wow. In 1968, the first Boeing 747 was rolled out of the brand new Everett plant, the world's largest building at the time. The first flight took place in 1969, and the 747 was certified in December of that year. It entered service with Pan Am in January of 1970. The 747 was the first airplane dubbed Jumbo, Mm -hmm. as in a jumbo jet, and became the first wide-body airliner. It was built to accommodate around 370 passengers in a two-class configuration. It could seat 10 across in economy in a 3-4-3 configuration, like I just said. Mm -hmm. It had an upper deck with a swanky spiral staircase to take you there. It could fly about 6,000 miles originally, but later versions would reach nearly 10,000 miles. Wow. That's cool. I've always wanted to go on a plane where I can go up a spiral staircase. You know, these airplanes are becoming less and less common because of the fuel burn. Right. Oh, but but the, the ones that are built still have the spiral staircase mm-hmm. that goes up. So regal. It is. It makes a, you feel like you're not on an airplane. Very cool. Yeah. And the original ones had like the first class seating was like the, uh, in the mm-hmm. upper deck. Some of them even had chefs. Ooh. Some of them had custom cocktails and like a bar. Of course. Um, some of them turned the up, upstairs area into like a lounge, including like a smoking lounge. Oh my God. Fun. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Count me in. I will travel every day. Uh, and and honestly, that's what they were going for. Mm-hmm. And they did pass on a little of their savings to the customers because they really wanted more people to travel internationally. Right. So it's kind of cool. So in its original form, which we are talking about today, mm-hmm. it weighed in at a massive 735,000 pounds. Holy moly. Yeah, that's a lot. That's about, <laughs> I would say about 375,000 kilograms. Wow. But later versions would exceed a million pounds oh maximum takeoff weight. What were they adding to make it so heavy? So they were making it longer oh. and adding more fuel. Physically, they're physically making the airplane longer and they're adding more fuel. Did that add more seats? It did. Okay. So later versions could seat in a high capacity configuration over 400 people. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's impressive. So the most famous 747, of course, is Air Force One. It's still being operated. Nearly 1,600 Boeing 747s will be delivered with the last delivery scheduled for October of 2022. Oh, wow. Then production will end and the four-engine jet will fade into aviation history. The 747 is still operated as a passenger aircraft by many airlines around the world. However, the majority of those still operated have been relegated to cargo operations. The largest operator of the 747 in the world is currently Atlas Air, and they operate 54 of these. They also provide training to the pilots of Air Force One. UPS has them, but passenger operations 
British Airways still uses them, and a whole variety of other carriers. And why are they phasing them out? It has to do with fuel burn. Okay. The engines just aren't as economical as a two-engine jet, mm -hmm. and the, they can't seat that much more. Right. And they can make really big two-engine jets, and so that's kind of it. Just yeah, mm -hmm. it's like it doesn't is, make it any sense. Doesn't make keep. sense, right? Yeah. So the 747 is the most iconic airliner in the world, and it's nicknamed the Whale. <laughs> so here's a picture of one. Oh, that's great. That's a Pan Am 747. Yep. That's actually the one we're talking about today. It's huge. It is huge. It's clunky too. Like you'd think, how is that getting up in the air with all that extra weight? But they're actually really fast. Mm -hmm. They're really good performers. They can carry a lot of weight and they can carry people a long way. And you know, these airplanes specifically, pilots love to fly them. They say they fly great. Oh, cool. Okay. So today we're going to talk about a company, or in this case, we're going to talk about two companies. So the company is KLM Royal Dutch Airlines. KLM stands for something that I can't pronounce in Dutch, <laughs> but the literal translation is Royal Aviation Company. Here, we're going to listen to a Dutch person say it. It's also somewhat of a joke, so we'll, we'll catch up on that or we'll, we'll comment on that, which not being Dutch, I don't get the joke, <laughs> but let's, let's listen to the audio clip. Let's see. Okay, here's the audio clip. I would have thought that the acronym for KLM would be pronounced as Conan Klitschke Luchtwert Matchkapage. And now I know that it's pronounced Conan Klitschke Luchtwert Matchkapai. Dutch! <laughs> what? What? So, that, so there's a lot of Dutch people online and they sort of celebrate it and they go like, woo! after they say it that's so funny it, why i don't know like i said i don't speak dutch so i don't understand the inside joke that's that's so funny what are they, are they happy that it's a royal airline and that it's their royal airline Boy, i don't know i okay so i'm just gonna throw it out there if any dutch listeners are listening to this i would love to know why klm pronouncing the whole name not just saying klm but saying the whole name is somewhat of a joke because it's all over YouTube there as has like to a be, jokey thing. Right. There has to be some sort of double meaning with one of the words or something. Yeah, I don't, or maybe not. Maybe they're just excited. Maybe they are. Maybe it's just words they don't use often or something. And right. it's just, ah, man, it's, that's I don't know. so funny. Anyway, it was. That's, thank God for acronyms. I know, really. And also thank God for YouTube. That's yes. just so funny to be able to hear it. <laughs> Okay. The things you find on YouTube. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, so let's talk about, let's keep talking about KLM. So KLM is the flag carrier of the Netherlands. A flag carrier means it's the official government-sponsored carrier. Okay. The United States doesn't have a flag carrier. Pan Am was the closest one we ever got to a flag carrier. But there are several countries that do, obviously, like Air Canada, Air France, um, and and just so many In more. Spain, Iberia. Okay. At least that's the like the Spanish airline I always flew on and like okay. very much from um, Spain. In Italy, Alitalia, mm -hmm. stuff like that. So yeah. It, yeah, that's what a flag carrier is. It's mm -hmm. the official carrier of the country. KLM is headquartered near Amsterdam and its hub is the Amsterdam airport. It is part of the Air France KLM group and a member of the Sky Team, which is part of the Delta Alliance. Okay, so if you buy a Delta ticket and you want to go to Amsterdam, it's likely that you'll be on KLM. KLM is the oldest airline in the world. Oh, cool. KLM began operating in 1919 when Queen Wilhelmina awarded KLM. Wilhelmina. 
What'd you say? Wilhelmina. Wilhelmina. Thank you. When Queen Wilhelmina awarded KLM its royal status, she gave them the royal status before they'd ever flown a single flight. That she had -hmm. a lot of faith. By the end of 1920, they had carried just 440 passengers, but they'd carried 22 tons of freight. Oh, wow. It was a small start, but they were on their way. Like I said, KLM is the oldest operating airline in the world. They have around 35,000 employees with a fleet of about 110 aircraft. But for some perspective, American, Delta, and United, each of those companies operates around 900 aircraft. JetBlue operates around 250 airplanes. So KLM is about half the size of JetBlue, making it actually a pretty small company. Yeah. KLM operates scheduled passenger and cargo service to about 145 destinations. And I'm going to show you their first poster. It says in Dutch, the businessman travels, ships, and receives by Air Express. And then at the bottom, it says Royal Dutch Airlines for the Netherlands. So here's their very first poster. Oh, wow. And obviously, it's going to be posted to the, in- to the Instagram, but... That is so cool. It's so 1919, that, though, yes. or 1920. Oh, right? yeah, absolutely. That doesn't look like a commercial airline no. poster. That I would think that that's a book cover almost. Right. I would pick that up and be like, ooh, what, what am I going to read in this? <laughs> I want to find this and actually put it in a frame. Like, yes. I want to find the original, like, put it in a frame. It's mm-hmm. really cool art. Very cool. So that's a quick wrap-up on KLM. Do you have any questions about KLM? I don't. I've actually flown on KLM before. Ah. And I have had a good time. Not bad. I mean, I've had some horror stories on flights, but KLM was a decent one. And the Dutch would go, woohoo! <laughs> yes, <That's> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> For whatever reason. Okay. So the next company we're talking about is Pan American world airways Mm -hmm. later known as pan am it was founded by a guy named juan trip and like i said most commonly known as pan am founded in 1929 as a mail carrier but soon was carrying passengers to international destinations in the caribbean central and south america they would later buy sikorsky flying boats which we talked about in the previous episode and these flying boats were often called clipper ships and this is where they earned their call sign clipper which they would carry until the end of the company. Knowing that their call sign is Clipper is kind of important to the story. Okay, so when they would talk to other con- to controllers or other airplanes on the radio, if their flight number was, let's say, 65, they would be Clipper 65, not Pan Am 65. Oh, okay. And a lot of companies actually kind of subscribe to that. Pan Am is the first major international air carrier and was the only airline that could be considered the flag carrier of the United States, but it was never designated as official. Mm-hmm. Pan Am has gotten, had gotten hugely popular and operated for much of the 20th century. It was the first airline to fly worldwide. They pioneered so many innovations of the modern airline industry, such as jet aircraft. They were the first to operate jumbo jets, and they were the first to, to use a computerized reservation system. Oh, cool. At its peak in the late 1960s and early 1970s, Pan Am advertised under the slogan, the world's most experienced airline. It carried 6.7 million passengers in 1966 alone. And by 1968, it flew 150 jets to 86 countries on every continent except Antarctica. And during the late 1960s and early 1970s, the airline was so profitable, it became the most valuable company in the world, very briefly. Its cash reserves alone totaled a billion dollars, which is about $7.5 billion today. I know that wow. doesn't seem like that much, but for the 1960s, saying a billion 
is a lot. Was a lot. Like, I mean, being a millionaire back then was like a big deal. Right. I mean, nowadays everyone is a millionaire, and if you're not, then you're not considered you're, successful. Right. You're not doing it right. Or I something. mean, it's ridiculous. But currency is no longer the same value. It's not the same. It's, right. Yeah. Um, back then there were no billionaires. So yeah, very impressive. No, oh. I was just gonna say it always shocks me because I know how successful and impressive Pan Am was. Right. But for then it to just crash and burn. Oh, we're co- I'm so we'll, excited. We'll cover that briefly. Yes. yes. <laughs> so Pan Am, quote, epitomized the luxury and glamour of intercontinental travel. And it remains a cultural icon of the 20th century, easily identified by its blue globe logo, what people call the blue meatball. Yep. Oh, it looks like a basketball. Yeah, it does look like a basketball, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. The use of the word clipper in its name and call signs and the white uniform caps of their pilots. So they wore a different color than their hat, which is a little bit unusual, but they wore white hats. This was all made popular again by the movie Catch Me If You Can. I was going to say that's where I know them from. They all look great all the time. I mean, they did a very good job at making it a premiere experience they really did and they they really worked hard at that image that was their whole thing Mm -hmm. pan am was forced to file for bankruptcy in 1991 and delta airlines purchased the remaining profitable assets of pan am so is that why delta is blue i'm not sure actually well actually i I can't say no i just don't know that's a really good question (laughs) including delta also purchased its remaining aircraft and its roots. Delta attempted a relaunch of the brand, but that actually failed. Did they try to relaunch at, still as Pan, as Pan Am? Am? Okay. Yeah. Pan Am's vice president for external affairs at the time of the of the dissolution of the company said this, quote, what could go wrong did. No one who followed Juan Trip had the foresight to do something strongly positive. It was the most astonishing example of Murphy's Law in the extremis. The sale of Pan Am's profitable parts were inevitable to the company's destruction. There were not enough pieces left to build on. So that's the quote from the vice president when, when it dissolved. Interesting. So he's claiming that the way that it was bought up is what caused its demise? I think what he's claiming is that once Juan Tripp, the original founder, mm-hmm. retired, nobody really kept it together. They had just had that vision. Right. It okay. said, he said no one had the foresight to do something strongly positive. So they became status quo. But then also there must have been something wrong with their business model because something that's strong in its business would not just collapse once the founder so is So there gone. is something wrong with their business model and that was called airline deregulation, which happened in 1978. Prior to airline deregulation, the government would had to approve the routes Mm -hmm. and they also regulated how much you bought a ticket for okay essentially propping up the airline industry right with by setting the prices so that the airlines could remain profitable because they saw it as somewhat of a utility right well after deregulation a lot of competition came in and if the airlines that operated prior to deregulation didn't change their business model then they were going to crash and burn. And that's what happened. Oh, yep. wow. wow. All right. So there are dozens of books written on Pan Am and its demise mm-hmm. from their early days until their failure. And although a pioneer and a cultural icon for a long time, unfortunately, Pan Am has begun to fade into aviation history. Yes. 
Do you have any questions about Pan Am? You've, you've already had some. So. Yes, I've, I've asked all the questions. Yeah. I, I find Pan Am to be so interesting because it's it was such a staple and so important to right. then just disappear and have it be a company that nobody thinks about or talks about anymore. Right. And they just weren't dynamic enough right. to adjust in the post deregulation world yeah that's what happened and i mean that's not even a question of vision that's a question of poor business model right bad where management it just, yeah or, it just couldn't know. survive the change right okay so you're ready for the date yes march 27 1977 i'm shooketh <laughs> what'd you say i'm shooketh <laughs> i'm crumbling <laughs> this day began as a normal day at 12 45 a.m though so quite early in the day. Very early. Captain Victor Grubbs, First Officer Robert or Bob Bragg, and Flight Engineer George Warns reported for duty at New York's John F. Kennedy Airport in Queens. They replaced another crew that had flown from LAX earlier that day, and they were flying Pan Am 1736, which was a special charter flight, which was going for the, to the Canary Islands. The crew had changed, but the passengers didn't even get off the airplane. It was what we called a tech stop. It means they stop, they change crew, they get fuel, they maybe cater the airplane, mm -hmm. and they keep going. So, have you been to the Canaries? I haven't. Okay. Um, I grew up in Madrid, um, and I've traveled a little bit around Spain, but honestly, embarrassed to say I have not traveled enough. And I have not been to the Canary Islands. I'm not sure anybody has traveled enough. <laughs> by the time you get bitten by the travel bug, you're just like, I haven't traveled enough. Right. Right. But do you know where the Canaries are? Yes. Okay. So I'll tell my listeners. The Canaries lay far to the southwest of Portugal in the subtropical waters of the Atlantic Ocean, 62 miles west of Morocco. It's a string of seven volcanic islands rising from the Atlantic Ocean. The Canaries are part of Spain, and they have been part of Spain since the 15th century. Ever since the advent of air travel, the Canaries have, be have become one of Europe's top tourist destinations, becoming a favorite among off-season travelers lo looking for a little slice of summer, which is offered all year long. Yep. And here's a picture of the Canaries. Oh, so gorgeous. Oh, gorgeous, isn't it? Yeah. Really I mean, gorgeous. I went to school with a, a kid who grew up in the Canary Islands. Oh, wow. Yeah. In 1975, Around 2 million tourists visited the Canaries each year. Wow. But as the jet age rose, the number of tourists poured in. At the time, however, airport infrastructure was more suited to the 1950s, when the number of tourists had been 10 times less, and the systems that were in place frequently broke down due to age and obviously increased use. Due to the remoteness of the Canaries, they were inconsequential to air travel, and system failures and infrastructure upgrades slipped under the radar of the Spanish government and of the international community. While major upgrades were taking place around the world to accommodate the larger and faster aircraft, like we talked about, the 747, mm -hmm. the Canaries had single runways, old lighting systems, poorly trained controllers, and understaffed control towers. Sounds like Spain. It really does, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, love Spain, but yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> but on this day, Pan Am 747, called Clipper 1736, was filled with 380 passengers, mostly retired couples that had bought a Canary vacation package and had gotten on in Los Angeles earlier the previous day. They were attended by 16 crew members, 13 were flight attendants, and three were pilots. 
The pilots were excellent. They had over 47,000 flying hours between them, and there were three of them in the cockpit. The third being a flight engineer, so he sits back behind the first officer on that side, and he faces the panel. He operates all the critical structure of the aircraft, fuel transfers and hydraulics and monitors those systems oh, cool. while the two pilots fly the aircraft. Mm-hmm. Um, one, to- one of the pilots is going to talk on the radio. The other one's going to fly. Okay, cool. Okay. The flight engineer is a required position at this time. As you can imagine, the airplane was less automated. Mm-hmm. The flight was a special charter and was not regularly scheduled. So Pan Am didn't typically fly to the Canaries. Okay. That's just how it was. Interesting. Regardless, the passengers were in very good hands. Very experienced crew. Mm-hmm. Excellent training records. Back then, airplanes often had names. And this one was no different. It was named Clipper Victor. <laughs> and here's a picture of Clipper Victor. Oh, he's pretty. Uh-huh. Big. Yeah. Chunky. Yeah, big boy. <laughs> Just an hour after Pan Am 1736 left their fuel stop in JFK, across the ocean in, how do you say the an- name of the Amsterdam airport? Schiphol. Schiphol? Yeah. I'm just going to say Schiphol. Yeah, let's go for that. Somebody's going to correct me, but I it's going to be fine. <laughs> just an hour after Pan Am 1736 left their fuel stop of JFK, across the ocean at Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam, the crew of a KLM Royal Dutch Airline Boeing 747-200, which is larger than the 100. It was brand new to them at the time. Well, the crew was reporting for duty, and their flight number was KLM 4805, which was also a charter and also going to the Canaries. Oh. And here's a picture of, of their airplane. Okay, yeah, it is, it's longer. It's longer. I guess the Pan Am one is chunky in the front. It's so the it's perspective. They're actually the same in the front, and oh. this one is just longer. Oh, wild. Yeah. That's cool. The crew on that flight was also notable. Let's talk about the captain. Hired in 1950, Jacob Van Zetten, the captain of the KLM 747, and the literal face of the airline's advertising campaign and a living legend. Wow. And he's the captain. I mean, to be on a flight with him... Right. There's I mean, your, it's an there's, honor. There's your poster boy. Oh, look at him. Here's the original picture that it was that, that was taken from. Oh, wow. That's he, so cool. He's the face of the advertising for yep. KLM. Okay. I mean, he is KLM. He really is. He was also the head of the Boeing 747 training program at KLM. Mm-hmm. Jacob Van Zanten had actually flown to Seattle to take delivery of KLM's very first 747. He had over 1,500 hours operating the 747 type, which for that time was a lot because there weren't that many. Mm-hmm. Although he spent most of his time training new pilots. The trip to the island of Gran Canaria would be his first in the aircraft in three months because he typically trained people. Mm-hmm. This wasn't cause for concern. He's very qualified. I mean, he's training people every day. I'd say exactly. you're probably at the top of your game if you are training people oh, because yeah. you really have to know what you're doing. And at the end of the day, you're educating people on how to use, not use, but how to work the aircraft. And he's so the, I would trust him. Right. And he's the head of the training department, right. too. I mean, so even more so. He knows what he's doing. Yeah. A colleague described him as, quote, a serious and introverted individual, but with an open-hearted and friendly disposition. He was a studious type and regarded as the company's pilot expert on the Boeing 747. He believed in partnership to the extent that he insisted on his first officers addressing him as Jop, his nickname, and not Captain Van Zanten. <laughs> Jop. J-A-A-P. That's my best. Jop. Jop. Yeah. Jop. Mm-hmm. 
His first officer is named Claus Muirs, and Captain Jacob Van Zanten, Jop, gave him his license on the aircraft just 95 hours before this day. Oh, wow. So uh, Captain Van Zanten gave Klaus Muirs his qualification to, right. to operate the aircraft. They also had a flight engineer. His name is William Schroeder, and he was the most experienced pilot in the crew. He had over 17,000 hours. He was also the president and co-founder of the European Flight Engineers Organization, which at the time was a major international trade union. Alongside this incredibly prestigious crew, there were also 11 flight attendants, 235 passengers, most of them young Dutch families heading to the, to the Canaries for a holiday. Also, a charter flight sold by a different travel company called Holland International. Wow. Any questions about the crew? No, they yeah. both on both aircrafts. They sound like they yeah. are extremely well equipped to deal whatever is coming their way. They they are very experienced. They know what they're doing. They have a lot of experience in the airplanes. And mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, you got good crews here. Yeah. Not just good. Incredible. I, I agree. I agree. The destination for both Pan Am 1736 and KLM 4805 was Las Palmas Airport on the island of Gran Canaria. At the time, this was the largest airport in the Canaries and the main port of entry for tourists. So I, so Las Palmas is still a large airport and mm -hmm. still where everybody goes if they want to go to the Canaries. Maybe this is not the right time for this question, but have they expanded? Like, has the airport become bigger? It has. It's The infrastructure has been upgraded significantly since we, this time. We'd hope so. <laughs> okay. So for this story, for historical purposes, especially for this story, it's important to talk about the history of the Canary Islands. Mm -hmm. The Canaries were already inhabited when the, when the Spanish first, quote, discovered them ah, yes. in the 1400s. Classic Spanish discovery. Absolutely. <laughs> is. The Spanish in uh, the 1400s, the Spanish claimed the land as theirs. The islands had been home to the indigenous Gauches since about 1000 BCE. Wow. So there had been people there for 2400 years prior to the Spanish, quote, discovering it. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> like most Spanish discoveries. Yes. So, you know, once the Spanish came, they claimed the island, they treated the Gauchos with total disrespect, and I'm sure they didn't do anything to disrupt their culture. No. Of course not. Mm, mm, mm. What do you mean? <laughs> Imagine that. Impossible. Exactly. The truth is that the Spanish were horrible to the Gauchos. 500 years after colonization, which is what we're talking about now, mm -hmm. the Gauchos had not forgotten the atrocities committed against them and their ancestors. The oppressive regime of dictator Francesco Franco began to unravel following his death in 1975. So the Gauchos formed a pro-independence political party and they wanted to make the Canaries its own country. They wanted to take advantage of the instability and they launched an armed political action group. And I'm going to let you read what it's called because you speak Spanish. <laughs> Fuerzas Armadas Guanches. Because they wanted self-government. I mean, it's like the North, Catalonia, as well as País Vasco, all of them, they wanted independence from Spain. And I mean, it's understandable, especially after Franco. So this was a time actually politically where you had a lot of groups mm -hmm. trying to get independence from the original um, oppressive regime, including the IRA, which was in Ireland, wanting to liberate North Ireland from the UK. Right. So you had a lot of a lot of movement in that sort of yes. sense, like politically. And they often were violent. Yes. Oh, yes. It was always bombings and 
attacks and just aggression. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because their, their tactic was also bombings. Their target, though, was property in high-profile areas. And unlike the IRA, the group has never been accused of directly killing anyone. Okay. I mean, I'll, we'll, we'll take that win. <laughs> exactly. So now that you understand the background, let's go back to March 27th of 1977, which is the date we're talking about. Before KLM 4805 and Pan Am 1736 could arrive that day, Fuertas Armadas yeah. detonated a bomb inside a flower shop inside the terminal at Las Palmas oh Airport on Gran Canaria. Oh, wow. They injured the shopkeeper, but they didn't kill him. Wow. But it was in the airport. As the police rushed to respond to that attack, the airport received a phone call and what they considered a credible warning for a second bomb. Oh, my God. This prompted the police and aviation authorities to shut down the airport. Hundreds of people were evacuated to the outside of the terminal while bomb squads moved in to scour the premise for further explosive devices. Wow. Scary. Yes. Though none were found. Okay. So it was a bomb threat. That's good. However, all the aircraft going to Las Palmas were told that they needed to divert. They needed to go somewhere else Mm -hmm. because the airport was shut down and they didn't know how long it was going to be shut down. Right. And you don't want a plane landing with bomb threats. Right. (laughs) And yeah. So they just said. I mean, they can't. They they don't want. They're not going to land them at the airport. And they said, well, we're just going to shut it down. We're going to send all the airplanes somewhere else. And you can't keep those airplanes in the air because you don't know how long it's going to be. Right. And they'll run out of fuel. Exactly. Okay. So they diverted all the airplanes that were going to Las Palmas to a nearby island, the nearby island of Tenerife, Hmm. including Pan Am 1736 and KLM 4805. The Pan Am crew had tankered fuel from JFK. That means they're carrying way more fuel than they need. Okay. In order to save money while in Las Palmas. And with that extra fuel, they asked air traffic control if they could hold because they had enough fuel to hold in the air for several hours as opposed as opposed to landing in Tenerife. Well, that sounds like a stupid decision. Well, they that's what they wanted to do, but they were told by the Spanish authorities that there were no exceptions and they told were told that Las Palmas was closed until further notice. So the disappointed crew and the passengers on Pan Am 1735 flew to Tenerife and they landed right after KLM 4805 had already arrived in Tenerife. So you can see that we're going actually to Tenerife. We're supposed to be in Las Palmas. Right. In 1977, the island of Tenerife had a single runway called Los Rodeos. That's the name of the airport. Mm -hmm. It was situated on a saddle between two mountain peaks at an elevation of around 2,000 feet or 600 meters. The airport was not built to accommodate Boeing 747s. Though the runway was long enough, it had narrow taxiways. It had no radar no RVR equipment, and I'm going to explain that in a second. Okay. No taxiway markings, and the runway centerline lights were also out of service. It was also a Sunday. I mean, being being Spanish, they're definitely not working that day. <laughs> staff's at a minimum. Yeah. Yeah. So let me explain RVR equipment really quick. RVR stands for runway visual range, and it's really a simple concept. It's basically a camera that looks down the runway to see how far it can see. Oh, okay. That's it. Not a is it deal. on the plane? No, it's on it's on the airport. Okay. So they would tell you RVR 1000, meaning the camera, the RVR can see 1000 feet. Right. But after that, then that's it. Right. It's, okay. It's a dead end. <laughs> yeah. So that's so that that would tell you how thick the clouds are and how dense it was, right? Right. But again, it's a Sunday. All these things are broken. Small airplanes go to 
Tenerife, not big airplanes. Right. They're not expecting an influx of aircraft. A huge onslaught of like giant jumbo jets, basically. Right. Yeah. Here's oh a picture of Los Rodeos. It's tiny. It is tiny. Oh my God. One runway. That is tiny. Those two planes would not fit on the same runway. Oh, wow. No. Wow. So you've seen the picture. Yep. And here, look at this here. This is the ramp. This is all the space they have. Right. And you're talking about many, not just KLM and the Pan Am, but actually everybody that was going to Grand Canaria got sent to Tenerife. Right. And it's both like flights within Europe, but also a lot of international flights. Right. So it's even if it's not the huge Boeings like the Pan Am one and the KLM one, they're still larger planes. Yeah, you're right. Well, planes, as you can imagine, started to stack up quickly Mm -hmm. at um, at Los Rodeos on Tenerife. And like I said, KLM 4805 was among the first to arrive at around 1.30 p.m. in the afternoon. In anticipation of further arrivals and knowing that space was very limited, controllers instructed Jacob Van Zanten to park down at the end of the main taxiway where the big 747 would take off first, should the stop at Las Palmas be lifted. Okay, so so they lined him up. They basically said, taxi down there park when it's lifted you go first right and, and then clear the the runway and then right, everyone but, else will in theory fit right and nobody else can taxi past him he's on the taxiway nobody can taxi past him he's going to block the taxiway but he's going to be the first to take off so it's not really going to matter right well on the klm they expected a long delay using an air stair from the airport the klm passengers were deplaned and they all got off The passengers were given ID cards so they could be found and accounted for after Las Palmas Airport had opened. And like we said, quickly, more planes stacked up, including Pan Am 1736, which arrived around 2.15 p.m. in the afternoon. The number of aircraft that had diverted filled up the apron, which is the area surrounding the terminal, and ground control started parking them on the taxiway behind the KLM, Mm -hmm. including Pan Am 1736. That's attempting to ensure that each plane could be driven out under its own power. Right. Because to back up an airplane, you need something called a tug. Okay. Is that the little cars that sort of, that you see driving around the airport that... Some of them, yes. They're the ones that hook up to the front wheel and then they pull the airplane around and they can also push it. Right. So we don't have enough tugs and we don't have enough personnel to operate the tugs on this Sunday in this small airport. Mm-hmm. So the, the controllers are trying to get park the airplane so they can pull out of, on their own without needing a tug. And that's a big deal because if you, if you mess it up, we, you may not even have any tug driver right. to take care of it. So Did they know how many planes were being diverted to them? They didn't know. So they were just, they fly, just, they flying just blind. keep coming in, <laughs> just keep coming in and landing. Oh, wow. And the controllers are going, okay, we don't know what to do with all these guys. Right. But... At 2.30 p.m., just 15 minutes after Pan Am's 1736 landed, bomb squads finished their sweep of Las Palmas Airport in Gran Canaria. And like I said, they found no additional bombs. And Gran Canaria was reopened just 15 minutes after the Pan Am touchdown. Wow. So KLM could have... Just waited. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So once they heard this, the Pan Am crew requested permission to start their engines and taxi for takeoff. Several smaller airplanes had already departed, but 1736 was stacked in tight, or Clipper 1736. So Pan Am 1736 was told by the controller that they probably wouldn't fit past KLM 4805, 
which as we said was parked at the end with Pan Am parked behind Right, blocking everyone's exit. Blocking it. Well, this was a problem because a 747 couldn't turn around on that taxiway because it's too narrow. Right. First officer Bob Bragg and flight engineer George Warns left the, the Pan Am aircraft and they walked to check if they could fit past the KLM 747. They paced out the distance between the KLM's wing and the edge of the taxiway and they found it to be just 12 feet or four meters too narrow. Okay. So they wanted to squeeze by the KLM in the Pan Am, but they weren't going to make it. Okay. Not enough space. But they calculated that and... Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they didn't try it? No, they didn't try it. They just walked over there and... They said so that it wasn't it. okay. Yeah. See, I was expecting them to be like, "Well, let's test it anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Screw up and break a a wing." <laughs> but over on the KLM seven forty seven, they had their own issues. In nineteen seventy four, the Netherlands passed a really strict law on flight duty time limitations that made pilots criminally liable for exceeding the flight duty period. Possible penalties range from loss of license to imprisonment. Wow. In addition, in nineteen seventy six. The law changed the way duty times were calculated, making the calculations so complex that the company had to do them for the pilot. Wow. So the KLM 4805 had to drop its passengers in Las Palmas, Gran Canaria, and hustle back to Amsterdam that night. That was their original plan. So now the crew is worried that they're going to go over their duty time limit and be criminally responsible for going over their duty time. So while on the ground at Tenerife, a KLM dispatcher was called and he told them that they had to leave Gran Canaria by 7 p.m. And he, quote, thought they would be legal, but that they should call before they left Gran Canaria just to be sure. Okay, so the situation is they're still on the ground in Tenerife. They have to go to Gran Canaria, deplane all their passengers, and then and get back to Amsterdam, leaving the next island over by 7 p.m. And it's like 2.30 in the afternoon, so they may have enough time. Yeah, but these things always take longer than we think they do. Always. Anytime. Yeah. I mean, you've flown (laughs) enough to know that they always take longer. Yes. I mean, you know, flight time is an hour and a half, but, you know, from planing, deplaning, refueling. Three hours. Everything. Yeah. It's, It's never that quick. They're thinking ahead and saying, well, what if we get stuck here? They would have to cancel the flight. And KLM would have to find enough empty hotel rooms to house all 235 of their passengers and 14 crew on a small island at the height of tourist season in the middle of nowhere. It was literally impossible to find that many hotel rooms because there weren't enough. Right. And then also logistically doesn't make sense. Right. So, but you can see how it's getting very complicated. Yes, of course. So remember that KLM 4805 had allowed its passengers to deplane. This was a really bad mistake. I was about to say, big mistake. You should never let passengers deplane because then they're just like, nope, I'm not getting back on. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Right. So this is no different. So now they were blocking the departure of another another 747, Pan Am 1736. Mm -hmm. And they still had the air stair pulled up to the plane because they were attempting to find all the passengers who were now wandering around the terminal. Of course. And also just giving them a little piece of paper to identify them is not helping them. The process of rounding up all of KLM's passengers was extraordinarily difficult. Ultimately, it ran until 4 p.m. So it was 2.30 when they opened the airport. It took them an hour and a half to find all their passengers and to get them back on the airplane. Wow. 
they found everyone but one person. Rabina von Lanschot, a Dutch tour guide living on Tenerife. She decided to go home. <laughs> Did they wait around to try and find her? It took extra time, but they didn't wait around for her. Okay. So only 234 of the 235 passengers were found because, like I said, Rabina went home. I mean, lucky her. She got to... She got a shorter flight home. Exactly. But she was <laughs> but she was going to be paid to give them the oh, tour. Okay. But she was like, I'm just gonna go home. Screw it. Screw it. Yeah. Like I said, two hundred and thirty four of the passengers were found out of the two hundred and thirty five. The door was closed and the air stair was pulled away. Miss Rabina was left behind. Meanwhile, back on Pan Am seventeen thirty six, the crew had been awake since well before midnight the night before. Mm-hmm. I can tell you from experience that this is when you are really tired. When you are up all night long, they were getting frustrated because they had been ready to leave for a long time, but they couldn't because the KLM airplane was blocking the way. Right. And they can't turn around and they can't go forward without it moving. And if you thought that was bad, the passengers on Pan Am 1736 had boarded the plane in L.A. nearly 18 hours before and they'd made a stop in JFK for fuel. That's a lot of time to be on board an airplane. Yes. So... In addition to being tired, their patience was being tested by a large group, like I said, from Los Angeles, and mostly senior citizens. They were chomping at the bit to get the hell out of there. So the Pan Am crew walked over to the KLM and talked to the crew, who told them they couldn't move due to their passenger situation because they're trying to get the passengers back on board. Back on Pan Am 1736, all of their passengers had eaten every bit of food and drank every beverage on the airplane. Oh, wow. Because they thought they would be in Grand, in Grand Canaria by, by now. Right. <sighs> so you got a lot of angry people. Yeah. Captain Jacob Van Zatten made another questionable decision after the one where he let his passengers off. Once they'd gotten all their passengers on board, Jacob Van Zatten decided to fuel the airplane. And he added an additional 14,500 gallons of fuel, which is about 55,000 liters, which was enough for them to fly... Not only to Grand Canaria, but all the way back to Amsterdam after that without putting on fuel. Wouldn't it have made more sense for him to just put on fuel in Grand Canaria yeah. and then like get home rather than potentially pushing them over the limit to... He saw it the other way. He thought that there would be a long line at the pumps, essentially, like a long line for fuel. A long line at the pumps... In at the Grand airport Canaria. that was shut down that had no planes. Right. Yeah. So he thought, he was <laughs> like, oh, well, once I get there, there everybody's going to be trying to get fuel. So I'm going to be last in line. Why don't I get it here while I'm first in line? And then I don't have to get it there. Silly. That was his reasoning. I mean, he he fair. made a call. Yeah. Fair. So all the while, the weather in Los Rodillas Airport, Tenerife, was getting worse. Tenerife Airport sat directly on the upslope of the changing Atlantic wind. And when that warm air blew up the mountain, something called upslope fog happened. As moist, humid air rises and cools off, it makes a cloud. Mm -hmm. The wind had switched directions in the afternoon, blowing that hot, wet air up from the ocean, like I said, and it got thicker, ultimately enveloping Tenerife's airport in passing clouds that were progressively getting worse and worse and more consistent. By the time KLM 4805 started the fueling process, it was sometime after 4 p.m. The clouds were already coming in and coming in patchy over the airport, creating intermittent conditions of very low visibility. Both crews knew that if the visibility dropped below their takeoff minimums, that they would all be stuck on Tenerife overnight. 
Two fully loaded 747s of people had literally nowhere to go. There weren't enough rooms on that whole island to house them. Wow. Yeah, because that's like almost 800 people. Yeah, it's like between the two of them. Yeah. yeah, 600 people. So they were kind of in a, they, they were like, we got to get out of here. Yeah. So at 451, KLM 4805 started its engines and Pan Am 1736 did as well. So due to the wind shift that caused the upslope fog and clouds, both planes would have to then taxi down to the other end of the runway and turn around so they could take off in the opposite direction that they had landed, but on the same runway. Does that make sense? Yes. So now they have to, now the wind shift, so they got to go all the way down to the other end. Oh, and like Then make turn a around, make a, make a, yeah, hang a Yui, right? Right. And then take off the other way that they had landed. So it's So just, now is Pan Am first? No, because oh, KLM, KLM still, still has blocks to go. them. Oh, so KLM man. now is going to back taxi, what we call back taxi, down the runway, turn around, take off. Then Pan Am will have to back taxi down the runway, turn around, and take off because there are too many airplanes on the taxiways. So now you have two airplanes that have to back taxi all the way on the runway, which is like two miles long. Right. Take off and then one after the other. So it's going to take even longer. Right. The controller was trying to figure out how to do what we just talked about. And they eventually told KLM 4805, to back taxi up the runway in the wrong direction, then make a 180-degree U-turn at the end. Easy peasy. Seems fine. A few minutes later, the controller told Pan Am 1736 to follow the KLM up the runway, then turn off at the third exit, the nearest one, which was not blocked by parked airplanes. And Captain Grubbs told his crew that he would rather wait where he was until KLM 4805 had completely departed, but he didn't want to argue with the controller because the controller's English was not the best, and they were all sort of in a rush, so he agreed. Captain Grubbs followed the KLM as instructed. He couldn't see KLM 4805 in front of him due to the fog. The fog became so thick at times that he actually struggled to see the center line of the runway, and the runway center line lights weren't working, so that was no help. And it made taxiing very slow. That sounds dangerous. Yeah. I mean, you'd think that an airport should have at least those basic light lights working just yeah. to not cause an accident. They also don't have ground radar there. And ground radar is something that shows the movement where each aircraft is on the runway. Oh. So now the controller has to assess from the feedback of the pilots where they are. Right. So Ooh, that's also difficult. kind of a... It's the blind leading the blind. It is. It really is. So both 747s slowly taxied backwards on the only runway, and the controller in the tower and both crews all lost sight of one another. Like I said, there was no ground radar, so the controller didn't know. So the controller relied on the pilots to tell them where they were. Visibility was just 300 feet at times, 100 wow. meters. Pilots can measure runway visual range by actually counting the stripes and dashes on the runway to judge how far they can see. So these pilots were counting and being like, oh man, what's that, 300 feet? So they're counting, they're looking at the lines down the road going, okay, th yeah. So they kind of have an idea. Right. They know that they have no visibility. Right. But occasionally, the clouds would lift and it would be patchy, about a, about a half mile of visibility, about a kilometer. And to add to the fun, if you remember, the taxiways weren't marked at all. I said that in the beginning. <laughs> As if it wasn't enough, the controller's thick Spanish accent made it hard for the Pan Am crew to understand what he was saying. So when the controller said, Papa Alpha set 1736, 
Leave the runway, third one, your left. The Pan Am pilot spent the next two minutes trying to figure out whether he said first or third. The controller asked KLM 4805, how many taxiways did you pass? The KLM first officer was talking on the radio and he said, I think I just passed Charlie 4 now, which is the last taxiway, which was what first officer Muir's thought was the fourth and final taxiway that angled off to his left. Then the controller said to KLM, then the controller said, quote, okay, at the end of the runway, make 180 and report uh, ready for ATC clearance. That's what he says. Okay. So things are getting a little dicey for everybody here. There's some non-standard things happening, and the controller is using out-of-the-ordinary aviation phrases mm -hmm. and procedures. For the record, it is pretty unusual for a controller to put an airplane in the takeoff position and then give them their route clearance. Right, because usually That's, they clear the route, make sure that they can actually take off, then put them in the spot, and then they go. Right, but they knew that they had to get the airplanes moving, and they needed to get Pan Am after them. Right. So now they get the KLM to go up to the end of the runway, and they say, turn around, wait for your route clearance. Okay. That's what the controller intended to do. Back on the Pan Am 747, the crew is trying to get clarity on where the controller wanted them. And the first officer, Bragg, asked, would you confirm that you want Clipper 1736 to turn left at the third intersection? And the controller said, and this is important, Papa Alpha 1736, the third one, sir, one, two, three, third, third one. So the crew confirmed it amongst themselves. But what did we just hear? The controller called Clipper 1736, which is what he is supposed to be called. He called him Papa Alpha. Right, so Pan Am. Right. The controller did this because it, up in the tower, the Pan Am's flight number came across his desk as a little slip, and written on that slip was PA-1736. Controllers nearly everywhere in the world would have immediately recognize this PA, and they would say Clipper. Right. That, because that's... That's what you call all PAs, mm -hmm. is Clipper. But, so the fact that he didn't is a red flag right. or a warning sign that right. he doesn't know what he's doing potentially. Right. So if an American Airlines flight comes across a controller's desk, it says AA. Well, the controller won't say Alpha Alpha right. or he'll say American, right? Mm -hmm. And everybody around him and all the other airplanes will recognize American. They would not immediately recognize Alpha Alpha. In a similar way, the crew of KLM recognized Pan Am as Clipper 1736, but didn't immediately recognize them as Papa Alpha 1736. Right. It's just an important distinction to make as we move through the story. Yeah. So you can, yeah, it's yeah. just, I mean, it just starts to lead to miscommunications and other problems. Right. Because if the flight is supposed to be Clipper, not Papa Alpha, of course, it's going to be confusing. They're going to be, they're going to think that they are waiting for a different plane of a different size or from a different spot. Yeah. Yeah. Everything. So as the Pan Am crew ran through their taxi checklist and crept slowly along the runway, KLM 4805 got to the end and began a delicate 180 degree turn. Captain Van Zanten had to turn the airplane around, which required 140 feet, 43 meters of pavement. And the runway was just 150 feet wide. So like I said, delicate. Because if Captain Van Zanten messes up and a fully loaded 747 runs off into the grass, even if it's dirt, even if it's hard dirt, it's 750,000 plus pounds. It's going to sink. Right. And it's going to get stuck. And then nobody is going anywhere. <laughs> 
and Jacob Van Zanten knew this, the airplane weighed in around its maximum landing weight at this time, not its max takeoff weight, but its max landing weight. And like I said, around 750,000 pounds. And that's because he elected to carry all that extra fuel. Yep. So he carefully and successfully swung that 750,000 pound airplane around on the runway. And he pointed it in the direction of takeoff. Back in the Pan Am, the crew, still taxiing down the runway, were struggling to find the third taxiway. But they were struggling with good reason. There were no taxiway markers. Oh. They'd been directed to get off the runway at what we call a reverse high speed. And this is the fault of the controller. I'm going to explain what a reverse high speed is. Okay, great. A reverse high speed is a taxiway intended for aircraft landing in the other direction to vacate the runway quite quickly. So it's angled like an off-ramp on an expressway, okay? Okay. But imagine you're driving a tractor trailer and you're going the wrong way up the expressway and somebody tells you, you have to get off this exit, okay? Impossible. You have to turn that that big semi-truck back all the way around to get off the exit. Right. Oh my God, you're turning into an exit that's facing the, other the way. opposite direction. And that is what the controller wanted the Pan Am crew to do. Mm-hmm. He's not used to jumbo jets at his little airport. He couldn't see them in the fog. And ultimately, the airplane would not fit. So Captain Grubbs saw this, and he knew the 747 couldn't make it. So the crew started discussing whether the controller had started counting from the position they were in when they got the instruction. So by the time they'd gotten it, they'd passed the first exit, which would mean that they should leave the runway at the fourth and final exit, not the third one. It just becomes really complicated to say, oh, the third turn. Right. Your third turn. It should be labeled and you should be able to tell them yes. the turn. With this sign. Right. Right. And they were they would have been labeled like C. One, two, three, four. Mm-hmm. So the Pan Am crew is like, is this the one? I can't get off here. Wild. It's just a mess in the fog. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because also, of course, there's no visibility on top of the fact that they want them to do a 360 turn. Right. It's not a 180 turn. It's a much larger, more complicated turn for such a big plane with zero visibility. Down at the end of the runway where KLM is, they have a big, giant, like, circle area mm-hmm. to allow airplanes to turn around. But where the Pan Am is, it's just like I said, like that high-speed exit. Right. They don't have a, a, an extra area to kind of go over to the side and make that turn better. because yeah, it's not built for it's that. It's not built for that. They just have to try to turn 300 degrees around and the airplane won't fit. Of course. Flight engineer, remember his last name is Warns, mm-hmm. on Pan Am 1736 said, I don't like this because he certainly knew, as did all the crew, that they were in an unusually tough spot and a potentially dangerous spot. They're sitting on an active runway in the fog. They know that another aircraft is in position for takeoff, and they are confused as to what they should do with good reason. Yes. As pilots, we call these threats. And in this case, they started to stack up. So back on board KLM 4805, the crew finished their last takeoff checklist items. Visibility at this point was a half mile around a kilometer. But another wave of dense cloud could be seen headed toward them down the runway, visibly moving toward them. You look nervous. Yes, I'm nervous about what's about to happen. No visibility, trying to turn this heavy plane, an active runway. I feel like KLM is about to crash into them. KLM, as a company rule, had a minimum of 1,000 feet or 300 meters as their minimum visibility for takeoff. So seeing this cloud bank gave them a sense of urgency because, again, they don't want to be stuck in Tenerife. 
At this point, they couldn't see the Pan Am because it had already been enveloped in the very heavy cloud that was moving toward them. So Captain Van Zanten started to push the throttles up, but First Officer Muir's said, wait a minute, we don't have an ATC clearance. So Captain Van Zanten pulled the throttles back and said, no, I know, go ahead, ask. So takeoff clearance and a route are very different things. An ATC route clearance is the description of the route which the airplane flies over after departure, but it doesn't give the airplane permission to actually take off. Okay. Okay. For that, you need a takeoff clearance. Mm -hmm. The two sound very different. Takeoff clearance is a very simple clearance. And in this case, it would sound something like KLM 4805, you're clear for takeoff. And maybe some instructions that follow that. Where a route clearance would tell them the route they fly after they take off. So for a non-aviation person, it, they may sound similar, but you're going to have to trust me. One is very sp specific and very like pointed. Mm -hmm. This is what you're going to do. The other one... How could I best describe this? It's like if you're trying to give someone directions to your house. Right. Mm -hmm. And then they're sitting at a light. And then and you, you say, say, oh, go now. Right. And that's the difference. So first officer Muir's asked for clearance and he was told, KLM 4805, you are cleared to the Papa Beacon, climb and maintain flight level nine or zero, which is 9,000 feet. Uh, right turn after takeoff, proceed with heading, blah, 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 blah. Okay. That's the directions to your house. Okay. Essentially, that's that's. But his, not clearance. That's to take his route off. clearance. But you didn't hear cleared for takeoff in that, no. because they weren't cleared for takeoff. So the person working the radio would read it back now for accuracy, and for first officer Muir's started to read back the clearance. Roger, sir. We are cleared to the Papa Beacon, flight level nine zero. But as he's reading it, we can hear the engines of the KLM seven forty seven dash two hundred begin to spool up. And Captain Van Zanten interrupts the first officer's read back and says, we're going. The engines are pushed to the takeoff position and the 747 starts the takeoff roll. Oh, no. First officer Muir's speeds up his read back after a little stutter. He says, right turn out 040 until intercepting the 325, which is those are not important. Mm -hmm. Then he adds, we are at takeoff. Is that, so if, to be at takeoff, does that mean you've been cleared for takeoff or you're, as a craft, you are waiting to be cleared? You're, you're better or at this than you think. <laughs> so the first officer is obviously taken by surprise and he uses non-standard phraseology, which you just pointed out. The controller, who is, whose English is not very good, doesn't understand. Because the truth is, like you just pointed out, which was amazing, he says, we are at takeoff. That's something that you didn't understand. The person who was English as a second language, he didn't understand. Right. It's giving, it's not clear. So are they sitting in the takeoff position and ready for takeoff or are they taking off? Right. The Pan Am crew can't tell. They're English speakers and neither can the control tower. And because this, we know that no one understood that KLM 4805 was already rolling down the runway. The controller thought that he meant that they were in the takeoff position. And the controller replies, okay. Then he pauses for two seconds. And then he says, stand by for takeoff. I will call you. However, the okay was heard, but the last half of that transmission was lost in a heterodyne. This is like selective hearing to an extreme. Okay. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, and it's, but it just, it just gets worse. So oh my God. a heterodyne is something that happens when two radios are transmitting at the same time. It's basically a low frequency scramble or a loud squeal that's heard. 
So we're going to listen to one. We're going to listen to a couple heterodynes so you understand. Right. But if you hear that, wouldn't, as an experienced pilot, wouldn't your reaction be, oh, let's pause. Something is wrong. Maybe. We didn't hear something. Listen to the heterodyne for me. Okay. I'm just trying to predict the story. Thanks for the door. So let's hear that again. You heard the beginning, mm-hmm. but then you could kind of hear what was in there, but... Right, you can hear some people talking. Right, so you're missing half of what they're trying to say. You are. So let me play another heterodyne for you. And it's very clear. There's, you can't mistake it. So we heard the end. Yeah. And we heard on request at the end, but the beginning was completely blocked out. Okay, let's see. Right, five zero on request. Right. But But I did not hear anything else. Right. Isn't your responsibility as a pilot to make sure you hear everything and have all the information? So if you don't have it, then you say, can you please repeat? You say, say again. Say again, right. Right, so... Let me get back to where I was. That's wild. Isn't that interesting? So the controller thought that KLM 4805 was in the takeoff position. And remember, he replied, okay. Then he pauses for two seconds. Then he says, stand by for takeoff. I will call you. But that part was completely lost in the heterodyne. At that moment, First Officer Bragg on Pan Am 1736 believed that that two-second pause was the end of the tower controller's transmission. And he keys his mic and he says... We're still taxiing down the runway, Clipper 1736. So both the controller and Pan Am Am were keyed out. The same time. Wow. So KLM didn't hear the fact that they were still taxiing, nor did they hear the fact that they should hold off for takeoff. Correct. So what they what Pan Am would have heard was a heterodyne. What the tower would have heard is nothing because they wouldn't have known that they were talking over the other person. And what Pan Am would have heard is they wouldn't have known because they were talking over the contr- over the tower. Right. Only thing that could have been heard is by KLM, and it would have been a heterodyne. And they chose to ignore it. The heterodyne would have been heard by all the other airplanes on the frequency, including the t- KLM. But the tower and Pan Am 1736, they wouldn't have known that they were talking over each other. But since it's a scrambled mess... It couldn't be understood by anyone that heard it. So back over in KLM 4805, the controller says, okay. And then the radio squeals for a couple seconds. Although the closest radio to the listener can usually be made out, though garbled, we could kind of maybe make out some words. Mm -hmm. And had KLM 4805 been listening more closely, they may have been able to make out that Pan Am 1736 was still taxiing. Mm-hmm. But KLM 4805 didn't comprehend the transmission. Remember that they're also Dutch speakers as a native language. So now we have a language barrier. And if you're trying to make out voices through a heterodyne with a language barrier. Even more so. Yeah. You look really nervous. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm like so nervous. Like what's happening next? <laughs> oh my God. And so KLM 4805 accelerated down the runway toward the dark wall of clouds and fog. As a takeoff roll in a big jet can take more than a minute, all was not lost. And a few seconds later, the controller said, Papa Alpha 1736, report the runway clear. But there's that pesky Papa Alpha again. He didn't say clipper, and he should have. Then F.O. Bragg replied, Okay, we'll report clear. 
but he didn't read back Clipper 1736, and he should have. The tower controller said, thank you. Back inside Pan Am 1736, Captain Grubb said, let's get the hell out of here. And F.O. Bragg replied, yeah, he's anxious, isn't he? And the flight engineer said, yeah, after he held us up for more than an hour and a half, that bastard, now he's in a rush. <laughs> um, so I need to explain some technical, some airplane technicals here, mm-hmm. but I'm going to keep it as simple as possible. So when an airplane goes down the runway, we label some of the speeds. The first speed that we're going to label is V1. V1 is the speed at which an an aircraft no longer has the performance to stop on the remaining runway. Mm -hmm. So once you hit V1, the pilot monitoring calls V1. The airplane is committed to flying because, like I said, stopping is no longer an option. They've used up too much runway. They don't have enough braking power to stop. However, the airplane isn't actually ready to take off until the speed of VR, which is V rotation, is achieved. Okay. When you call V1, you have to go Mm -hmm. and you have to wait until VR is called in order to rotate. Okay. It takes a few seconds between V1 and VR. It can take a couple seconds. They can happen simultaneously. They can be 10 seconds apart. It just depends on the type of runway and the conditions, et cetera. Right. That's pretty clear, right? VR and yes. V1. Okay. Yep. Back on... See, I'm getting wound up. Mm-hmm. Back on I the mean, KLM. I mean, it's a very dramatic story. It is. Back on the KLM, flight engineer Schroeder was listening and he overheard the conversation between the Pan Am and the tower. And he said, is he not clear then? And Captain Van Zanten said, what did you say? And flight engineer Schroeder replied a little more emphatically, is he not clear? That Pan American, to which Captain Jacob Van Zanten, poster boy of KLM, 747 training guru and Czech airman, confidently replied, oh yes. So KLM 4805 continues to accelerate. First officer Muir's calls V1 which as we learned means that they are committed to flying and stopping is not an option. Captain Victor Grubbs looked across the cockpit nervously and he spotted the landing lights of KLM 4805 through the fog. And for a moment, he thought he was catching a glimpse of it sitting in position through patchy clouds and fog. But the lights were vibrating and moving a little bit and Captain Grubbs yelled, there he is, look at him. Goddamn, that son of a bitch is coming. He turned the steering hard to the left. He pushed the throttles forward to aim for the grass. The takeoff configuration warning horn sounded, telling the crew that the airplane wasn't ready for takeoff because the power is all the way up and they're not configured for takeoff. So you get a warning horn in the cockpit. On the flight deck of KLM, the giant Pan Am 747, white and blue, also appeared to them. Captain Van Zanten yelled, oh shit, and he pulled the control yoke back to the stop, attempting to force the heavy fuel-laden 747 into the air before rotation was called. So the tail of KLM 4805 slammed into the runway in a shower of sparks, cracking the pavement and carving a trough nearly a foot deep and 25 feet long as a 750,000 pound airliner fought physics to become airborne. Wow, I'm getting chills. But like I said, it was before rotation speed. So after the initial tail strike, the tail of KLM 4805 dragged and the nose was up in the air for the next 1,000 feet down the runway. At the last moment, the wheels left the runway and the airplane was airborne. But was it too late? We'll know more after the break. Exactly. (laughs) And that's for part two. Just kidding. (laughs) With its nose up and its tail just six feet off the runway, the heavily fueled KLM 747 slammed broadside into Pan Am 1736 at a speed of 160 miles an hour. Oh my God. 255 kilometers per hour. All four engines, its landing gear, and the entire rear of the fuselage ripped through the right side of, Pan Am's, of the Pan Am 747 
the outside right engine sliced off the fully occupied upper deck of Clipper 1736, instantly killing everyone in the upper deck and tearing the ceiling off of the airplane oh and my the main god. cabin. Oh my god. Oh wow. Then KLM 4805 was airborne, badly crippled, and at first climbing up to about 100 feet above the runway, and then falling. 500 feet down the runway, it crashed, where it broke into three pieces and slid another 1,000 feet. Oh my god. A fuel fire immediately flashed over, and everything was instantly consumed in flames. Everyone aboard KLM 4805 was killed. Not a single person could even release their seatbelt. Oh my god. No one even stood a chance. But back on Pan Am 1736... Except for those seated in the upper deck, most of the 396 passengers and crew were still alive. The crew had instinctively ducked down in their seats, but after the airplane shook and metal crunched, First Officer Bragg heard the now much louder whine from his own four engines still running at takeoff power. He reached up above his head to shut the engines off, along with the fuel and hydraulics, and his arm reached into the open sky. He looked up. And he looked back, and the entire top of the airplane was missing. Oh, my God. It's hard to hear. Yeah. Then the desperate evacuation began. At the back of the main cabin, the passengers had nowhere to go as debris littered the rear of the cabin and a fuel fire flashed over it. But near the front, people began to make their way out. Many found their way out through a hole in the tangled fuselage and emerged on top of the left wing. They started jumping from the left wing. Nearly all of them older than 60. Wow. Some landing on others. The second door on the left side was the only emergency exit that anyone managed to open. I mean, I guess a broken leg is better than losing your life. Oh, absolutely. Broken hip or whatever I mean, you got. Yeah, I mean, doesn't matter. Just sure. get out. Absolutely. Survivors described the hellish scene. The cabin filled with smoke and debris where people sat frozen in their seats, shocked, stunned, unable or unwilling to move, staring off into the distance. As some sat frozen, fire flashed over top of them again and again and came up through the floor. The survivors said that many passengers never even tried to escape and were stricken with shock. So they just sat and burned to death? A lot of them. Oh my god. In the cockpit, all three pilots survived the collision. However, the swanky spiral stairs that would normally get them to the lower deck was entirely missing. So they jumped. Captain Grubbs fell all the way through into the cargo hold as did a flight attendant, where they found a little hole in the fuselage and escaped. Crew and passengers that could move made their way onto the wings, where the menacing engines were now spooling down, but still very dangerous. The long drop, or realistically the fall, was the next hurdle, so they jumped. And like I said, some landing on, the, on each other. Many broke legs, hips, limbs, backs, and some were paralyzed. Oh my once the crew made it to the bottom, they screamed for the passengers to run away. And as they did, a damaged engine, still running at takeoff power, came apart, throwing shrapnel, which is made of sharp titanium, in all directions, killing a flight attendant who was helping with the evacuation. This is... I know, you can't really comment. There's yeah. not really anything to... I, know. I mean, it's, it's a disaster. A total disaster. I mean, what a fucking impatient man to then kill himself and everyone around him. So many. Ugh. Moments later, the fuel in the right wing exploded, followed by the center tank, and finally the left wing exploded and launched debris into the air. The fuel tank explosions decimated all remaining parts of the aircraft, and anyone who hadn't or couldn't run away was killed. Between the two aircraft and their tens of thousands of gallons of fuel, the fire burned so hot that the thick fog that had laid over the airport was wiped entirely off. By Like, it was replaced by smoke. Just 
it evaporated. Wow. The, the area, the temperature rose. Oh my that, God, yeah, So of much that the fog just went away, burned off. Oh but up in the control tower, dense fog still obscured the controller's view of the wreckage and fire, but the sounds of two explosions were unmistakable. With the earlier bomb blast in Gran Canaria still fresh on their minds, the controllers first thought that a terrorist had struck again. However, the pilot of an airplane parked on the apron soon reported that the fire was visible through the fog, but its location was uncertain, as was its source. When the controllers attempted to contact the two 747s without a reply from either, they realized that something truly horrible had happened. No shit. As airport firefighters hurried toward the glow of the flames, they first found KLM 4805 lying on the runway, completely engulfed in flames, so they started fighting the fire. It was not until several minutes later that the fog burned off enough for them to see another fire a quarter mile, 500 meters up the runway. They assumed it was another part of KLM of the KLM 747, and an additional fire crew rushed that way and realized to their horror that the second fire was another burning 747, the remains of Pan Am 1736. Its wreckage now strewn over the airport, its survivors scattered about. It was so destroyed from the three explosions that the fire crew had no large fire to fight, only small fuel fires scattered about. So now do you want to see some pictures? I do. I don't know. I do, though. So that's oh, after the wow. initial, and here is the complete carnage. Oh, my God. There's nothing left. There's nothing. Tens of thousands of gallons between those two airplanes. I mean, it's dust. It, it basically is, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple large recognizable parts, but really... Yeah, but I mean, the main body of the plane is dust. It's It was engulfed and consumed. Completely consumed. Oh, my God. Ambulances were also on their way, and the survivors were quickly gathered and put in them. Some good Samaritans drove their private cars onto the airport to help, and some of the survivors were taken to the hospital by them. This is when airports didn't have the big fence around them. Right. Right. They Pre had a fence, but it was just like a chain link fence. Yeah. The airport issued a call for more ambulances, and more came quickly. However, unfortunately, they were not needed. Of the passengers and crew on KLM 4805, no one survived. Well, except Rabina. Oh, my God. I forgot about her. Best decision she ever made in Abs her life. Absolutely. <gasps> Remember that she'd gotten off and she had not replaned. Oh, my God. I have goosebumps. <laughs> <laughs> now I understand why you kept repeating that. <laughs> when investigators looked at the flight data recorder, it showed that the initial impact was not enough to have caused anyone on 4805 to die. However, the post-impact fall, because remember, they were already flying, and fuel fire was the culprit. It was later concluded that the fire consumed the plane so quickly that the people were still buckled in. I mean, that teaches you a lesson. Don't refuel. <laughs> Don't carry much. You never, th this is funny, they always say uh, with pilots, you never have too much fuel unless you're on fire. <laughs> Case in point. Kind of true. Yeah. On Pan Am 1736, fire was also the primary killer, but loss of life was even heavier. Initially, 327 of the 396 on board were killed, most from fire, but this number grew to 335 due to the later death of some with extensive burn injuries. In the end, only 61 people survived, including all the Pan Am pilots. Oh. The death toll was a staggering 583. Oh my God. The damage to human remains was so complete that most of those who died were never located, and the final count was done by simply subtracting the survivors from those on the passenger manifest. That is, that's horrific. It is. Oh, wow. So you've just sat through 
the worst aviation disaster in history not being surpassed until the events of September 11th. Wow. I don't even know what to say. We're going to look at it a little deeper here in a second. Okay. Yeah, I know. There, there's not I mean, much to say. It's like everything leading up to it, every decision that was made by that man. Like I changed what I said about him now. I mean, he obviously was cocky and we're going to talk a little impatient. bit more about that i think there's a lot of factors that we have to talk about with that I, okay it's maybe I mean, not it's, so cut and dried but we'll yeah it doesn't sound like he was cocky i take that back it's more that i guess it's all the regulations like everything, everything around it everything was piled on him for sure yeah mm, let's yes we're, we're getting there while most other aviation events involve people from all over the world this crash is unique because most of the victims were from Los Angeles or from the Netherlands. Interestingly, statements issued by the Gauchis, whose florist bomb had set the whole sequence of events in motion, expressed genuine horror at the scale of the accident. However, they vehemently denied that they had intended to cause such destruction. I mean, they could never have guessed that something like that would happen. No. But if anything, it was a lucky sort of reaction to their bombing. It became a more prevalent and important story. Although it's interesting because the group's leader, who was in exile in Algeria, said that the tourists should have never come to the islands during, quote, armed struggle. I'm, I don't, I'm not going to say either way, but <sighs> the group's leader was like... It's your fault. Well, <laughs> yeah. shouldn't have come. <laughs> so... Mm. Okay. So the National Transportation Safety Board, the FAA, and the aviation authorities from both the Netherlands and Spain quickly came to the crash sites. Their worst fears were now a reality. Two nearly full 747s, the largest jets in the world, had collided on a single runway. They described the scene as apocalyptic. And here is an overview after it was done. Oh, there is wow. nothing there. And you can see, so that further away pile of dust... That's yes. KLM. Yep. And then the one closer to us is yes. Pan Am. Yep. Wow. It really didn't get far up in the air. I mean, it went up and then down immediately. Yep. The chain of events which led to this crash were, as we have seen, ridiculously long. And the timing of the events were so very precise that it would nearly be impossible to duplicate. After all, neither plane was even supposed to be on Tenerife in the first place. So now we're going to look at the causal details before we do the forensic part of this disaster. We have to discuss this tragedy fairly, so I'm going to interject with some rules here. Mm -hmm. The first thing, and I'm sure you can agree with this, is humans tend to think that large disasters often come out of proportionately large causes. Hollywood loves to tell the myth because it makes a good movie, right? So <laughs> a dam is going to burst. So we have to gather together and stop it, right? An alien invasion. Again, we have to rally to combat it. A comet's going to hit the earth. Some evil guy is threatening the world, etc. All those we love to see as they're single factors. Right. It's always one point that brings us all together. Right. Those make good stories. But a long cascade of small events, some just in the way we hear things, that's not really good Hollywood. No. But it's accurate. And it's much closer to real life and how things actually happen. Research in a number of fields, including medicine, infrastructure, transportation, aviation, show that the assumption of a, what we call a single large cause is entirely false. What is true is that a buildup of small interruptions can shift the dynamics of an event in such a drastic way 
that small events, even minute ones, can cascade into huge disasters, while large single causes may result in catastrophe, but rarely. Teams often rally to fix the big mistakes because they're so obvious. The truth is, though, that a a cascade of tiny events often goes unnoticed until it's too late. So that is almost every nuclear disaster we've ever had. That's, I mean, that describes so many things. I mean, yes, it's always a question of the people in charge ignoring the small signs, the little things that would make all the difference. Right. If you're mad at Jacob Van Zanten, you're kind of missing the point. And as time passes and the details of this story get slowly abandoned for a blame model, the aviation community has mythologized Jacob Van Zanten as some sort of folk villain. I mean, it's easier to blame someone else than have to analyze the whole situation. Totally. As a society, we've painted him as an angry, evil, overbearing person who had to get his way, where in reality, there's just no evidence to back that up. I mean, at the end of the day, everyone made a mistake. The guy in the the tower, the pilot from Pan Am, and him. And we're going to cover each one of those independently really quickly here. Mm -hmm. Many summaries of the accident that I read, including the one on Wikipedia, would have you believe that Jacob Van Zanten was like some kind of monster, and he took off knowing that he hadn't gotten takeoff clearance, but that is absolutely not true. And I think the single cause approach and the villainization of Jacob Van Zanten is lazy. And I think it's a coping mechanism because, like you said, we're too lazy to look at the actual factors. The rule I'm going to apply before we look at this is we are not going to write off nearly 600 deaths by making Jacob our antihero because it's wrong and it's lazy. The truth is that most plane crashes are a result of normal people making decisions based on incorrect information under challenging circumstances, and Tenerife is no different. We have to remember that mass death can make us ignore the fundamental truth that a complex chain of events, both psychological, physical, chronological, tempts us to blame one person. So... We are not going to do that. We're going to look at the complex factors that caused the crash. Or if we don't do that, we're not going to learn a damn thing. Right. So let's take a few minutes and dive into the events that all lined up so precisely. So the bomb. The bomb. <laughs> bomb. That created a, um, a mess. I mean, that was the inciting incident, as we would say in yeah, writing school. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yep. So that caused the airplanes to have to divert. Both planes diverted after Grand Canaria closed, and then parking became a situation. The way the KLM was parked prevented Pan Am from taxiing past them. I mean, and even before the parking, the unknown amount of planes going to that airport. This little airport. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how are you supposed to park them if you don't know how many are coming? Right. Then we have to talk about the delay. KLM made a bad decision. And Jacob Van Zanten probably did not make that decision on his own. He probably talked to the flight attendants and his crew, and he said... We don't know how long we're going to be here. And also, we look at it now and see that it was a bad decision. But as a passenger on a plane, if I'm let out of that plane by the pilot, I love him. Thank you. I don't want to sit in this plane for two hours. Like, who knows how long? Well, remember that uh, the controller said Grand Canaria was closed indefinitely. Right. They didn't know. They were just like, it's closed. I think he made the right call for the information that he had. I agree. You know, you mentioned before about the pressure that he was under. It was caused by the Dutch regulations. Mm -hmm. It was caused by the weather, lack of hotels. He couldn't just say, you know what? We'll call this day. We'll take it up tomorrow. He couldn't. There literally wasn't enough places to put his passengers. That's an outside force. Right. You know, that's acting on him. That has nothing to do with his skill in flying a plane or that technical side. Right. It's the practical side. And the weather. Yeah. 
he he had to deal with weather that was changing and he you was can't like control that and then they didn't have the rvr equipment like i said so he's like well i i just got to go when it's clear because i don't i can't even measure it all those things cause pressure yeah misunderstanding so we have to talk about the pan am crew they didn't know where to get off the runway and as it turns out the controller wanted them to take a taxiway that they couldn't physically take so that's a mistake on the controller's part mm-hmm. and the limitation of the 747. So that's also something that you have to look at the design of the aircraft and say, we can't turn this way. That led them to be to become essentially lost in the fog. Right. Jacob Van Zanten misunderstood the clearance as a takeoff clearance. I know that we didn't specifically hear clear for takeoff. We're going to get back to that one. There's That's complex. Okay, because I was going to say, that's the one point yes that i think is sort of unforgivable and yes. inexcusable and is the fact that he heard that dial tone and he still went ahead yes he didn't take a moment because all it takes is a beat to say hey say that again right what happened like, what are, what we, are we supposed for, to do are we clear for takeoff right you can key the mic and say are we clear for takeoff yeah get a get a confirmation yeah. that you are actually clear for takeoff yeah we're, we're it'll gonna, take a minute and it will change the course of your life. <laughs> yes. And we're going to get back to that because that one's kind of complex too. Mm-hmm. We need to add that the misuse of the call sign Clipper mm-hmm. and Papa Alpha. Well, And the fact it's that Pan Am didn't correct them. That's right. They is didn't on them. correct them. They didn't even read back their number. When he was still on the runway, he said, Roger, we'll let you know. He didnn't say, Roger, Clipper 1735, right. we'll let you know. He just said, Roger, we'll let you know. So now... You can't blame KLM because KLM doesn't actually know who they're talking to. Mm-hmm. The flight engineer, he he was like, what did I hear? Which was dismissed by Captain Van Zanten. Of but course. still, nobody was really clear in that moment. Right. right. The controller also confused the Pan Am crew and failed to understand what KLM was actually doing. The controller equally could have called Pan Am and said, I'm sorry, what are you doing? Right. So it doesn't go one way. It is actually a two-way street. Mm-hmm. In fairness, each person who talked on the radio in this whole scenario, they messed up. They didn't use correct phraseology. They failed to read back their call sign. They got the call sign wrong. The list goes on and on and on. I know that you mentioned before that language is a factor. And of course, that does create some miscommunication. But there is that official language that is used for a reason. It's so that miscommunication like this doesn't happen. So that it doesn't matter what language you speak it's always going to be clear. That is why there are codes in place and that is why there is language like that used. Right. So... 100%. (sighs) Yep. But here's a crazy factor. Here's something nobody could control. It was like the bomb. The heterodyne. The heterodyne was just absolutely critical in the chain of events. And I can't imagine a more insidious thing with absolutely perfect timing than that block and those two guys talking over each other, Mm -hmm. that radio squeal. It was just at the perfect freaking moment. It was like, are you still on the runway? We're still on the runway. But that was just a beep. Yep. Ah. It was like, I'm a firm believer of things happen for a reason. (laughs) And it's sort of like the universe making it happen. It was just, it was always meant to happen that way kind of thing. Just the timing is just so insidiously bad. Yeah. So then the last thing that we're going to talk about is the quash. So Van Zanten's flight engineer, like we said, questioned his decision, but he was silenced by the assured captain. We're going to revisit that in a second because there's actually some dynamic here that we got to talk about. Because I was going to say the fact that the captain was just like, yes. Yeah, it's fine. It's like, dude, you didn't hear it. Nobody heard it, which is why 
everyone out of the three guys in the cabin, you're all confused. You should have questioned it. Yes. Right. So these events are truly a look at what happened. But a much more historically important question is why it happened. And for that, we're going to talk about poster boy Jacob Van Zanten specifically. We know that Captain Jacob Van Zanten took off without clearance. And he killed nearly 600 people, including himself. But we also know that he was one of the most respected pilots at KLM, the literal poster boy, the head of the 747 training program. He wasn't these things because he was a bad pilot. And he wasn't these things because he was a bully or because he was reckless. We have to acknowledge that he did, in fact, earn these titles. Mm -hmm. An interesting side note is that when KLM heard about the crash, they called Jacob Van Zanten's home for him to lead the investigation. So they didn't realize that he was the dead pilot? Not realizing that he was already dead. Oh, wow. And ironically, he would become the center of the investigation. I mean, that shows some lack of organization on the KLM I completely side. agree. How do you not know who's piloting your planes? I oh, That wow. is a question that I went, what? How is KLM still going? <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe I should not fly KLM again. So now we could go into a days-long discussion about the deep psychology here, but I'm going to summarize it. And I took a lot of time to research this. First, the situation put the whole crew under stress. And stress can make some people perform better and have a greater sense of awareness. But eventually, as the stress builds, nearly every single person performs worse. And this was a stressful situation. It started stressful, and it just slowly built. So there are no doubts that it was stressful. One of the things stress can cause is something called regression. Jacob Van Zanten was primarily a training captain and he was not a line pilot. A training captain gives training and checking in a controlled environment where you're in the simulator, you line up for a runway and you're cleared for takeoff. So it's worth saying that this is what he was used to. Yeah. He also hadn't flown in three months. So when stress built up, it's not outside the realm of possibility that Jacob Van Zanten regressed back Sorry. to what he was used to. Does that make sense? Yes. I mean, and that also sort of explains why he did not manage himself or his team well under pressure. Right. Because he was not ever put in situations where he needed to deal with a situation under pressure. A absolutely. I mean, and he was brain... always leading in calm situations where yeah. he was a training captain, where he could stop and go, OK, this is how we're going to do it. Right. Where you can take a step back and say, nope, let's yep. start again. Absolutely. Can't start again in real life. And from my perspective, it's easy to be an instructor. You can see two people making a mistake from from back behind them and go, ooh, this guy's making a mistake here. But when you're in that sit, but when you are one of the people that's making the mistake, much harder to see. That's why they say hindsight's twenty twenty and all that stuff mm -hmm. is because when you're watching it after the fact, Monday morning quarterback. Yeah. When you are one of those people, it's really difficult. When you're living it, you don't see the mistakes you're making. Right. You are just trying to do the best with the situation at hand. So we have to talk about how the crew handled him because he wasn't the only one in, on the flight deck. Right. We need to look at something called value attribution. Value attribution is where others place a value on a person's opinion based on the prior knowledge they have of them. We already covered how highly valued Jacob Van Zanten was. But to make it worse, the first officer was really new on the airplane and the captain, who was the person who issued his license. So in the eyes of the first officer, who was he to question? In his own eyes. Right. Who was he to question 
the guy who had certified him to operate the aircraft. Yeah, there's this inequality in that relationship where it's the guy who trained you, who gave you your license. You can't question him. You're not going to say a word. He's your superior and he knows better. Exactly. Or so you're told. <laughs> so the first officer is probably sitting over there going, what value do I bring? Right. What do I know? Who am I to question this? Jacob Van Zanten never said, don't question me. Right. His attitude was not like that. In fact, we know from his records that he wasn't that person who would say, oh, don't question me. Just nobody questioned him. Right. That was, that's how it was. Because they didn't He Maybe he didn't value. Why. Yeah, they yeah. didn't see why they should. They trusted him. So we have to consider that the first officer was simply unwilling to believe that Jacob Van Zanten would have made such an egregious mistake. Yeah. In his eyes, he was potentially was like, this guy's fine. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. I mean, honestly, I think that's a fair response. I mean, your teacher, the the man who's told you you are ready to fly, right. why would you question him? He knows right. everything. Right. But let's talk about that flight engineer that was in the back that questioned. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to understand his background too. He was an outspoken advocate of, quote, limiting the role of the flight engineer in a multi-crew environment. How do we know this? Because he was the president of the flight engineer union and he was outspoken about it. He talked about it. He wrote about it. He campaigned for his elected position on that platform. And this means that he actually advocated for himself and others in his role to have less decision-making power in the cockpit. Why? Honestly, to make his job easier. Well, that sounds lazy. I agree. But Captain Van Zanten knew that, and so did he. So let's go back to that value attribution. When you say, I'm not as valuable to other people, you become less valuable. Right. You believe that your opinion is less valuable. Right. He devalued his own position in that crew dynamic. Interesting. So that is a really kind of an interesting thing. Yeah. I mean, and that's also, it's coming from a place of laziness. It really is. Because it's, he just doesn't want to do as much. So then don't listen to me because my opinion isn't important. It's not as important. But you're the engineer. Right. Your opinion is the important He's opinion. He's a flight crew member. Right. So considering the flight engineer's views, let's talk about something called cohesion. Mm -hmm. And we can get this group cohesion in any kind of group. A cohesive group can more easily put pressure on a dominant individual. But like we just said, this group wasn't cohesive. In fact, if you look at it carefully, each person in this group is almost acting as an independent agent. Yeah. And they're all insecure about each other's decisions. They are. But don't say anything about it. So what does that mean? It means that the crew was reluctant to speak up, just like you said. They felt like they couldn't or... Maybe they just didn't know if they were correct. Mm -hmm. So this is a huge factor. And Van Zanten was only a small contributor to those specific dynamics that we just talked about. Mm -hmm. He didn't tell the flight engineer how he should feel or, or the role he should play. Right. He also didn't tell the first officer to be quiet or whatever. He didn't say those things. Those value attributions were put on him. Right. So essentially, so the crew just let him be an independent agent and do whatever they wanted. Right. I mean, Not the whole factors. point of having multiple crew members in a cockpit is so that things like this don't happen. Multiple brains, multiple opinions to come up with solutions and right. figure out what's going on. And the group needed to be cohesive and they were not. Yeah. So let's 
look at another factor, something called loss aversion. It's the drive to get the mission done and not doing it can be viewed in many ways as a loss, like a loss of pride, a loss in this case of legality, a loss of money for the company, a loss of time. So there's some pressure to complete mm -hmm. because you don't want to be the cause of loss. Yeah. You're like, okay, I don't want to say no because it's going to cost us a lot of money. Yeah. And if I say no and it's the wrong decision, then it's on me. So right. it's easier to blame it was cap e the captain Absolutely. than to speak up and say, hey, this is wrong and potentially be wrong yourself. So let's talk about confirmation bias, which mm -hmm. is what you just talked about. <laughs> Van Zanten heard the clearance. He is not a monster. He truly thought that he was cleared for takeoff. The first officer told the tower they were taking off and the tower didn't tell them to stop. Now we know that the heterodyne blocked that part, but confirmation bias is very real. So when the flight engineer questioned Van Zanten, he genuinely thought they were cleared for takeoff. So that's where some cognitive dissonance kicks in. Once Van Zanten was going down the runway, he was far less likely to acknowledge like other evidence. Right, or any wrongdoing. He was like, I've made my decision. I heard it myself. Mm -hmm. This I've made happening. my decision. This is happening. Yeah. So he did all he could to hold on to his belief that he was right. Again, let's talk about the psychology. It's immensely overwhelming and important, and we could talk for days about it. Mm -hmm. But you can see that not all the factors were his fault. He made decisions that were ultimately sort of backed up mm -hmm. by the crew, whether it was through lack of their objection or through their direct confirmation. Yeah, I mean, he made decisions based on the limited information that he had, and based off of that information, technically didn't do anything wrong. It's just that he didn't have the correct information. He had wrong information. Yeah. So like we said in the beginning, incidents and accidents happen from some person making decisions about what they think is correct, even though they have wrong information. Right. They're not being intentionally evil no. or negligent. He didn't wake up that day and decide, I'm going to kill myself and everyone else on right. my plane. Nope, absolutely no. <laughs> not. That was never his intention. His intention was, let's get these people to Spain and then let's get home. That's it. Yep. That was his goal. That was the goal. So let's talk about the outcome of the investigation. The Spanish government's investigation con concluded that the fundamental cause of the accident was that Jacob Van Zan attempted to take off without clearance. However, they acknowledged that all the other things that we just talked about were definitely contributing factors. Okay, that's good. The Dutch weren't so quick to blame. The Netherlands Department of Civil Aviation published a response that, while accepting that Captain Van Zanten had taken off prematurely, argued that he alone was not to be blamed for the, quote, mutual misunderstanding that occurred between the controller and the KLM crew. And they had a valid argument. This is why... We, so these are the reasons we can't just write off captain van zanten as the single cause he's not the bad guy or the villain he was a guy who made a mistake based on information that he thought was accurate even though it was wrong he's not a villain i agree it's terribly sad it really is klm ultimately res accepted responsibility for the accident klm paid the victim's family's compensation ranging from fifty-eight thousand to six hundred thousand, which is around two hundred and fifty thousand to two point five million in two thousand two dollars the sum of the settlements for property and damages was 110 million, uh, which is about a half a billion dollars in 2022 damages. However, due to liability limitations set by European courts, an average of just 189,000 or 845,000 in 2000, 
$22 was paid to each person who died. So about 200000 to 900000 2022 dollars I mean, I guess all of that is great, but it doesn't bring those people back. No. It always frustrates me when that's the solution to everything. I mean, there is no other solution. There is no other solution, but what? But you can never put a price on it. Right. Like you're just throwing money at these people's lives and it's like, oh, well, this is what they're valued at kind of thing. And I know that there are some listeners out there going, oh, well, that's 200000 isn't enough or two two you know 890,000 or 900,000 isn't enough but my question would be what is enough if nothing. that's the question nothing that's my answer is yeah it's never going to be it's enough it's never going to be enough no. if they said here's 50 million you still can't bring back your child or your relative or your grandparent or whatever yeah yeah it's that person's gone they're gone and th- there's no price tag on someone's life right exactly so i i won't comment on how much money cuz i just yeah. don't think that there's enough I agree. So here's the big one. What changed because of this accident? And this is really significant. Well, for starters, the following year, the Dutch quietly updated their rest and duty requirements, (laughs) bringing them in line with the rest of the world, making them easy and less onerous. Yeah. Yeah. That was the first thing. Well, because the thing is, is to make it a crime to work past. Actually crime to to work too long. Right. That is not okay. That is totally not okay. That was so bad. you're you're wording it or phrasing it in a way where it's like, this is for you. This is for your benefit, but it's really not. No, you're just making their lives more difficult, more dangerous and causing problems like this one to happen. Right. So the basic stuff was fixed. Like the runway lights got repaired. Ground (laughs) radar was installed at the airport. Those are easy things to fix, right? Those are like, Oh, here's some dollars. Fix that. Right. The hard things though, got a good start toward getting fixed as well. IKO, which is the International Civil Aviation Organization, they published an English and phraseology book and they started an awareness campaign and it became a huge deal. The official language of aviation is English and it was in 1977 when this happened. And although it can be hard to understand with thick accents, clarification became encouraged. Also, because of accidents like this, um, also because accidents like this highlight the need for clarity in language, Okay and Roger became the accepted way to acknowledge clearances. And as pilots flying in the right now, we're taught to be hyper aware of poor ATC instructions. But controllers are also taught to be hyper aware of pilot mistakes. I want to say this is a very big deal because so many problems arise from failure to communicate. Right? I mean, this is a huge thing. Not just in the aviation world, but in our personal lives. In every situation, I think most of the times, it's a lack of clear communication is what causes problems. Yes. And they addressed it. And there is very specific phrasing for each thing that has to happen now. I mean, very specific phrasing. If you say the wrong thing, the controller will say, say again. Like, I mean, you said the wrong thing. Right. Or if you acknowledge a clearance, but you don't read back certain parts of that clearance. Mm Mm-hmm. When they were clear to get off the runway and he says, okay, we'll report clear. Right. Modern aviation would say, I need you to read back your call sign. So I know it was you who acknowledged. Right. Yeah. So a lot did change as far as that. I mean, that's good. It's important that they made those steps forward to make flying safer and make sure that an accident like this doesn't happen like because of miscommunication. But that got carried into many fields the medical community, the uh, utilities community, a lot of other fields now have clear language guidance. This became the most important accident, one of the most important accidents with respect to modern aviation because it resulted in 
one of the biggest developments in aviation history, something called crew resource management. United Airlines began developing crew resource management in 1978 as a system specifically designed to enhance the effectiveness of crew communication, knowledge, and resources, which we are talking about today. These things were the primary contributing factors to this crash. One thing that CRM does is it seeks to place a higher value on the perception of the first officer, essentially dethroning the captain. And that is good and for good reason. CRM is used before a flight to review known issues, identify potential threats like being tired or not having flown enough or complex procedures, anything that could be seen as a threat. During a flight, CRM happens in real time. It empowers all the crew members to speak up and be proactive. After a flight, as a debrief to figure out what went wrong and what could have gone better. If you analyze what you did and what you do repeatedly, you get better and better at doing that thing. So the brief and debrief portion of crew resource management is such an effective tool that it was adopted by sports teams, <laughs> coaches, players, from the NFL to the NBA and down into college and high school sports. It was adopted by doctors and embraced by the medical community. Race drivers, especially rally racing, no, is known for its CRM, in addition to many other industries. I even found a compelling reference to this crash and the factors leading up to it on a high-power electric grid safety website. Wow. So it became universal. So although incredibly tragic, the ultimate development of CRM as a tool for so many industries has saved many lives. We literally can't count them because safety, when safety measures work, there's nothing to talk about. Right. However, I would say that the lives saved are certainly in the hundreds of thousands, if not higher. So the people who died in Tenerife didn't die in vain, although I wish they didn't die at all. Yes. <laughs> as long as we remember that this accident was so complex and we look at the complex factors and we learn something from it, we learn to save lives. That's what we did in aviation. We got a lot from this. So the last bit, could this accident happen today? I mean, hopefully not. That is why these measures are put in place. Yeah. That is why the language is specific and has changed so that accidents like this don't happen. That's true. I always hesitate to say no. Yeah. But on this one, I would rate the odds of something like this happening, again, as infinitesimally small. Well, because I mean, human error. Yep. There is always space for human error. I agree. But if you are checking and double checking then you're doing everything in your power to make sure something like this doesn't happen again. So due to better awareness, other all the other technology improvements, better communication, all of the factors that got put into play after this happened, I just don't see this happening again. Although as a counterpoint, heterodyne hasn't changed. Oh. So we still have that. Interesting. And in fact, the recordings that are on here mm -hmm. are actual ones I took. Oh, wow. I just took them with my iPhone. So that doesn't change wild but i guess the way that we handle them exactly totally yes the way that we handle them is entirely different yeah so if you hear the heterodyne yep then you'll say say again right so and as you just listened to the worst aviation disaster in the history of aviation like i said outside of 9-11 mm -hmm. it was very complex what are your thoughts very complex so many thoughts good and bad i mean if you look at most of the accidents and like when things go wrong, it's just a lack of attention to detail. Yeah. It's people being lazy. It's people not confirming, not communicating, yeah. not following protocol that they know better, that they should. 
True. So, I mean, it's it's a disaster. It's horrific. I can't believe that happened. But I'm glad that because of that, we now have safer airways. And we now have all of these safety measures put in place and clear communication, clear language. So Jacob Van Zandt was definitely the cause, but there were so many system failures. And I mean systems like with a big S, like non-standard phraseology was Mm -hmm. accepted. Yeah. A lot of the other procedures and things that we saw happen, that was just accepted. So it's almost as though we needed something like this to then fix that. Right. Because you never see the problems until they cause a problem. Of course. You don't see the issues. You don't see the safety issues. No. Because it's not an issue until it is. Because it's not an issue until it is. Yeah. Right. So this is so significant in the history of aviation, probably the most significant Well, and not just aviation. It's so significant in so many industries. That's right. Sports is a huge benefactor from this. But like I said, the medical community enormous on CRM. They are very, very big on team building. Mm-hmm. They're very big on value attribution. Like Right. Because so- it like someone's life and a situation like that should never be in one person's hands. Right. Because that's one opinion, one mindset, one, you know, way of seeing it. Just like in any industry, including creative industry, yes. teamwork makes the dream work. Absolutely. No, it's and it's so and you're important. So right. You're so right. And it is so true. So I'm going to read my sources. Yep. Okay. So let me say, this was the longest research and writing project I've ever taken on. It took me about 35 hours. And you know what? You did an incredible job and thank you so much. You were fantastic. So my sources, the original ac- accident report, I obtained that on projectteneriff.com. Wikipedia, I donate to Wikipedia. I think everybody should. It's a great resource. Airdisaster.com, businessinsider.com, neuroleadership.com, a research paper from Journal of Air Transportation Worldwide, an article called Apocalypse on the Runway, Revisiting the Tenerife Airport Disaster that I found via reddit.com. Whywereason.wordpress.com provided an article called How We Explain the Tenerife Disaster. I used history.net. I used airsafe.com. I used the Airline Pilots Association original report called Human Factors Report on the Tenerife Accident. I used pbs.org, a New York Times article from 1977, which I didn't name in my res- in my sources here. And last but not least, uh, Tenerife Inter- informationcenter.com. So many sources. Oh my goodness. But I mean, that's good. Fact check, fact check. Yes. Lots of fact checking. And all of the pictures that you commented on that we looked at, Mm -hmm. they are all, they're all going to be posted to the Instagram. I didn't show you this piece of art. This is a, a, an older piece of art from a 1977 article. Oh, wow. Of that the kind of shows the accident, right? Oh, wow. So maybe it help you visualize. Yeah, because I mean, I can imagine it, but not really right. quite to the extent of what it actually was. Because I mean, right. I've seen the aftermath where there's nothing, nothing. But that's what it looked like. Wow. That mm. is a poignant image. Yes. That. Well, anyway, we have been at this for a long time. Yes, we have. Um <laughs> I so appreciate having you on. Of course. Thank you for uh, having me. Yeah. No, thanks for taking time out of your day. This is a long, this was a long bit of time to take. So thanks for uh, being on. Of course. We'll have you on again. Yes. And thanks so much. Yeah, of course. My pleasure. Until next time.